So welcome back to Hit Refresh podcast. As you know, we are a podcast for students by students. So we thought, what's the topic which will be the most relevant to students of our age, particularly as we are all engineers and our hosts and me. And our primary audience is also uh, consists of engineers who are in their final years or pre-final years. So one thing that comes up is what's next. That's the question, right? So. uh we all thinks of think of masters in uh foreign colleges and abroad that that are ivy league colleges right so we thought let's bring us an expert uh who will help you solve your doubts and who has been through the process uh so we have with us steve gardner so steve gardner is a harvard graduate uh, who did his masters of liberal arts in the field of study is business administration and management He is also the teacher trainer and founder of the Ivy League Challenge where they help equip students to successfully pursue the college of their dreams. He is also the host of the Ivy League Prep Academy podcast. So check it out and it's really helpful we have gone through it and it has helped we found it very helpful so do check that out. So thank you Steve thanks for coming today and thank you for being in this episode. Oh you're very welcome. It's it's an honor to be here. I'm I'm glad that I can participate and hopefully I can be of help to some of your listeners. Yeah, definitely. So, let's go back to the start. So, firstly is that you got into Harvard. So, how did that happen? Like was it a childhood dream to get into Harvard or did you just uh f- like find that passion while you were on the journey of, you know, just edu- in the journey of education? Um, I don't know. I I think that uh I don't know that it was a childhood dream, but a certainly an a, a young adulthood dream. Yeah. Um I as a child, I never really considered another university other than where my parents went. I just thought that's what everyone does. Uh and I only applied to one university and and that's where I went. Um also I had I I was a I was a, a debater. I I was a competitive debater and uh was offered a scholarship to go to that university so it wasn't even I didn't even apply uh I just accepted the scholarship and and was yeah no I applied I I did have to apply but I I wasn't worried about getting in um Harvard is amazing I I tell everyone who has ambitions to go uh go for it it is um there there are very few things that have you know the 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 brand or the reputation that Harvard has that live up to that reputation. And in my opinion, my experience at Harvard exceeded every every expectation ex- exceeded um all of my hopes for for what I thought could happen there. It was it was a lot of work. It was um it was challenging many many times it, it challenged me, but it was a dream uh the whole time and that campus is unbelievable the history and the 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 human beings that are on that campus i mean it, it's just crazy to be in an economics class and to be talking about you know the founder of or or the the origin what are what are the founders ideas that led to this this theory in economics and to to be discussing what we think the uh the writer of the theory thought and then for someone to say you know what his office is just down the hall let's see if he's there let's see if we can find out i mean and these are these are these are the textbooks that everyone in the world is reading for for economics and and the professor that wrote the theory that is in everyone's textbook is just down the hall um and and it seems like it's that way for for almost every single subject um my wife is uh she's a teacher and the the number one education program in the world is is the Harvard Graduate School of Education and so she's she's uh she studied there um her masters in in education and same thing they would talk about education theories and and people would say well let's go talk to him let's go talk to the person who who wrote the theory let's find out what they were thinking and if they still believe that and 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 we can you can go talk to people to 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 find people like Steven Pinker or um you know Clayton Christensen or um any of these these people on campus uh is just amazing it's 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 really amazing and and that's just that's just the teachers 
the, the students that you meet and interact with are also really inspiring. And, and it's just a, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful experience. I, I truly, I highly recommend it. I know that a lot of people talk about, you know, maybe, maybe it's not worth it. The, it's so expensive. And, and, and I know it's not accessible to everyone. And certainly, um, you know, whether you want to go or not, doesn't mean you can just go, but, um, my experience was it was better than I expected. It's better than I could have imagined. And anyone that has ambitions to go, I encourage them. I'm, I'm your biggest cheerleader. I, I really think you should try if you have that ambition. Yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. So, but, so how did you come up with the idea of Ivy League challenge? And, uh, like, was that, uh, while you were in Harvard or even before or like when you got selected and or when you got admitted was that is that when you thought that the process itself is so uh, uh i wouldn't say tedious but then the uh, the image of the thing everything is that it's very tough to get in and yeah. the, i guess the perception that people have isn't exactly common or, or same everywhere so yeah. you tell me so where did it come from yeah so the ivy league challenge is a program that i've created that i teach uh, to help students get admitted, not just to Harvard, but to top 30 universities in the United States. So the most competitive, the most rigorous schools, the eight Ivies, the MIT and Stanford, Chicago, Northeastern, some of these, some of these really, really uh, high level schools that are difficult to get into. And they're not, they're not all looking for the same thing. So it's not like there's one one method to get into all of the schools, it's not like that. But the Ivy League Challenge teaches the correct mindsets and it teaches kind of uh, what's, what's actually going to set you apart and help you get into these schools. So what I, what I discovered is I, I went from business to education. Uh, I used to own a personal development company and then I was the CEO of a, of a very big project and the hours were, were so demanding that when my child was born, uh, about nine months after my child was born, I submitted my resignation. And it took several months to transfer it over. But once I was finished uh, as the CEO of this, of this project, my wife and I uh, accepted a job opportunity abroad to teach English. Well, to, not to teach English. I, I taught business in English and she taught uh, she taught English at first, but she's an elementary school teacher. Anyway, um, so my background in business and my background in owning a, a personal development training company really came out when I started teaching. When I started teaching in the classroom and I see these high school students who uh, made choices that I knew they would regret later on but I also knew that they didn't care what I thought. I was their teacher, right? And so when you're at that age, 13, 14 years old, you don't care what your parents think and you don't care what your teachers think, but you do care what your peers think. And you care, let's say you're 14 years old, you care what the 15 and 16 and 17 year old kids think. Uh, but you don't care what your teachers think, you don't care what your parents think. So. I had a lot of advice that I wanted to give to these students, but I knew they didn't care what I thought. And that's when the Ivy League Challenge was born. I reached out to some of my classmates from Harvard and said, would you come to China? I was teaching in China. Come to China for a week. Let's spend a week and we'll talk to these students, not as their teacher, talk to these students as Harvard graduates, right? And just tell these students, this is my advice for you based on you know, my experience and, and how I was, I got into Harvard, got through Harvard, got a degree. Um, and we can kind of teach these, these high school students the things that they need to know. And that went better than I expected. That camp went really, really well. Uh, the school immediately asked us to come back later or the next time we could. Other schools in the city wanted us to go to their schools. And um, very soon there were schools uh, all over Asia really, in, in Korea, and in China, um, in Bangkok, in Singapore, uh, who that had all requested that we come and we do this camp for them. And over time, we realized that um, 
you know, the stuff that we were teaching them, we were teaching them from the perspective of if you can adopt these mindsets, then life is going to be much better. But at first, we didn't tie that to college admissions. What changed things is when we realized that students do care what older kids think and they do care what Harvard students think, but they also are highly motivated by college admissions. And suddenly we just said, okay, let's connect all of the dots and say, not just teach them the advice that we have for life. Let's teach them the advice that we have for these years of middle school and high school that will determine if you have a chance to get into an Ivy League school or a different top tier school. And so we started spending a lot more time teaching the strategy, teaching, uh, teaching how personal development work is translated into a successful application to an Ivy League school. Um, and, and once we started doing that, the popularity just skyrocketed. Now everyone wants to know, everyone wants to learn more. We, I started the podcast because we got too many requests. I didn't have time to, to go and to meet with all of the students that, that needed support. And, and the podcast, it turns out, is a very, very good way to kind of get the word out. These are the things that you need to know if you want to get into Yale or Princeton or Harvard. This is how you do it. Um, and, and the important thing is that the advice that most people are getting is just terrible advice. It's just terrible advice. It's, it's imagine, imagine if you were traveling, let's say you were traveling to, uh, to Cambridge, Massachusetts. You wanted to visit Harvard, right? And, and, and before you went, you downloaded on your phone, you downloaded a map so that you could get from the Logan Airport in Boston to Harvard and you could see everything. And imagine that when you get to the airport in Boston, you open up your app, but the map is, is 50 years old or 60 years old. I mean, you're, you're going to have a difficult time getting to campus. Yeah. Because some of the roads have changed. And some of Absolutely. the roads that used to go this way, now they go that way. And especially if you're trying to get to specific locations, a 50 or a 60-year-old map is not going to get you there. And so many people in this world are getting advice from people who, who might have been successful at getting into an Ivy League school 30 years ago, 20 years ago, but it's just like trying to get around a, a new city from, with a 100-year-old map. Uh, you're gonna be very, very frustrated. And so yeah. you know, if you'd like, we can talk about what the bad advice is and what to do instead. But you know, once I teach students the correct way to position themselves, then you know there's it, it really makes a difference life completely transforms because you don't get into harvard or princeton by checking off boxes you just don't you have to become the kind of person that they want and and that's that's a genuine process you can't fake it and so anyway it's a it's a it's an honor to be able to teach this material and and to see see how lives change see how these teenagers are completely transforming their lives because they're motivated to do better. No, that's absolutely right. Because uh, I like the way you said that you teach them the mindset and it is like, it's not a trait that you have to take and it's like the whole uh, complete thing which you have to like keep in mind. So the uh, cliched thing or the common thing which people hear is that you need to be the perfect student if you want to get into these colleges and or universities. So uh, like you need to be like uh, 100% in all the SATs and GRE and everything. And you need to also have some extracurriculars and you need to you need to have this and this and this and everything. But so according to you, what are some like what is the mindset or what is the positive thing that uh, any applicant should keep in mind while applying to these colleges and yeah. by going on the journey? Yeah. So I didn't tell you anyone who's listening to this conversation right now, you should know that Tejas and I did not speak before. I didn't tell him to say that that's the advice that everyone gets, but probably everyone listening said, yeah, that's what everyone says. And yeah. 
I would say that is exactly what everyone says. Everyone says there's four things you need to do to get into Harvard or Princeton or Yale or whatever. The first is take the most rigorous classes available at your high school and get top grades in all of them. The second is to get perfect or near perfect SAT scores or ACT scores. The third is to demonstrate leadership in as many different activities as possible. So if you can be an athlete and a musician and be in student leadership of some kind, that's the best, right? Because you're demonstrating leadership in all these different areas. And the fourth is to have some kind of standout factor, some kind of X factor or spike, whatever. There's a number of ways to say it, but some area where you become truly exceptional, better than almost everyone else. And if you do those four things, then you're more likely to get into a top university. Okay. You've heard that before. Yeah. And I yep. imagine that if, if your listeners are people who genuinely are exploring the possibility of, of attending one of these colleges, that they've heard this before and they're actually trying to do exactly what I just said. Yeah. Yep. Now, here's the thing. At what cost? Okay. What is the cost to you personally if you try to fulfill all four of those? Most rigorous classes, perfect grades perfect or near perfect SAT scores, demonstrated leadership in a number of different categories, and a personal spike or X factor, a personal area of excellence. You are giving up a lot to do that, right? You're going to be a, a yeah. very, you're going to have to be very driven, going to be, have to be very disciplined. You're gonna to have to be exceptional to do those things, Yeah. okay? And, if you're willing to do those things, then you're probably telling yourself and you're probably telling anyone who doubts you, you're probably saying, yeah, I know I'm giving up sleep. I'm giving up friends. I'm giving up fun. But look, this is only for a few years and it will be it will all be worth it if I get yeah, into my exactly. dream school because the rest of my life is long and then I can reap the benefits of this dream university. Okay. However that equation that philosophy that strategy is broken for three reasons the first reason it's broken is because you do not you are not accurately assessing how big of a cost this actually is you think that sleep is no big deal it's worth it to sacrifice your sleep so that you can become this kind of person well the research says that your sleep actually plays a huge role in not just your physical growth, but your brain development, your ability to learn the things that you need to learn to be the person that's going to get these scores is highly dependent on getting enough sleep. Uh, and we could go on. There are a number of things that sleep impacts your ability to function in the world. Number two, giving up fun and friends when you give up fun and friends you are giving up spontaneity you're giving up curiosity you're giving up uh you're giving up innovation you're giving up creativity you're giving up a lot of the things that actually make you interesting as a human being that bring spark and bring life to to your existence that make you uh not just an interesting person but someone who thinks that life is interesting um and so if instead of pursuing your curiosities and your interests and trying to be, you know, this special person who, who follows their interests, instead you say, I'm going to sacrifice the things that I care about so that I can do these things. You're giving up a lot of that internal fire that would drive you to excellence. So the sacrifice is a lot bigger than you think it is. The cost of giving up friends and fun and sleep is way bigger than just sacrificing for a few years and then later I'll get, you know, it's like I'm investing in myself and then I'll get the money back. That's a terrible way to look at it. But the second reason is even bigger. This is an even bigger deal. The second reason that this strategy is broken is what is the message that you are telling a teenager when you give them that strategy? The message you are giving that teenager is that I don't care what's important to you. Your values and what you are interested in is not important. You are not good enough to get into Harvard and Princeton and Yale. 
your interests, your core values, what makes you you, not that good, not good enough. So instead, you should pretend to be like that person because that person got in. They are good enough, you are not. So instead of being you, be as much of you as you can be, go be that person and then you'll have a chance. Wow, the cost of that is even greater than the first reason why it's broken. Yeah, Right. yeah, exactly. Sending the message to a child, to a teenager, that you're not good enough, the things that you care about don't matter, the things that you care about are not going are not good enough to get you into your dream school. Therefore, you should mask those things, cover them up, and instead pretend to be a, someone else who has different values. It's not going to work, right? You're you're sacrificing. You're sending the message that you are not good enough, and as you're living the message that you are not good enough, by by creating the facade of being someone else. One, you won't have the same internal drive that they had because they were authentically pursuing their values. You won't have that internal drive and you will fall short of what they were able to do. But two, let's pretend that you actually force your way in. You will yourself into campus. You are going to be spending most of your time at Harvard in the, uh, in the counseling office, talking about your yeah. mental health, talking about your imposter syndrome, talking about how you just don't feel like you measure up to any of your classmates because you got in on a lie. It's really, really rare. They're very good at identifying those people and not accepting them. But if you do slip in, you're going to hate your life there. You might even drop out. But that's a yeah. huge cost. Okay, It's a huge cost. And the third reason you're probably not going to get in because of the third reason. The third reason is it's just a bad strategy. MIT and Harvard and Stanford and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and Duke, all these schools, they are not looking for 2,000 clones of the same kind of person. Yeah. They don't want everyone to be a valedictorian with perfect test scores, demonstrated leadership, and some kind of area of expertise. They don't want everyone to fit that mold. President Drew Faust, the Dean of Admissions at Harvard College, famously said that she could fill two freshman classes with leftovers with only the valedictorians who apply to Harvard. Okay, so just take the valedictorians, number one in their high school, only the people who are number one in their high school you have enough to fill two freshman classes at Harvard and still have leftovers. Wow. And yet, how many of the people admitted to Harvard are valedictorians? Only a fraction of them. Only a few of those students who are admitted were valedictorians. Okay? That, why? Because Harvard doesn't want 2,000 of the same kind of person. And Harvard admissions officers are not trying to figure out who the most qualified person is. They're not even trying to figure out who the most qualified person is. You tell me, how would they? How yeah. would they? If you've got two valedictorians with perfect test scores and outstanding, the same resume, how do you decide which one is more qualified? Yeah. Which valedictorian is the better valedictorian? They were both number one at their high school. They could not yeah. have done any better. How do you decide which one is more qualified? Admissions officers don't even pretend to try to find the most qualified students. They're not even pretending. They will tell you, we have a holistic approach. We're not looking for the most qualified. What are they looking for? They're looking for the most, well, whatever they're looking for, the person they end up admitting is someone who is the most memorable. Instead of trying to be the most qualified, you're never going to get admitted by being the most qualified. Try to be memorable, right? So what I tell my students, the, that, that process, that strategy, get great grades, test scores, demonstrate leadership, and, and, and create expertise in some area, those four things are exhausting. The cost is too high. 
it's going to mess with your mind. You're going to think that your values aren't good enough, and it's it's not a good strategy anyway. Instead, what I ask my students to do is identify their core values. That's the first thing you have to do. What is most important to you? What makes you angry in this world? What what makes you sad? What breaks your heart? Right? What brings you to life? What brings you just joy when you think about or when you do something? Those are clues to your core values. And then I have exercises that I take my students through to help them clarify their personal core values. And once you've clarified your core values, then we do what I call an average Joe activity audit. And I have them write down every single activity that they're involved in. And then I have them take a tick mark next to every activity that really any, any above average, any somewhat intelligent, hardworking student could do with time or money, right? If you have enough time and you're just an average or above average student, then you could do this activity. Or if you have enough money and you're just average or slightly above average, you could do this activity. Any, any of those activities, put a tick mark by it. And the students are amazed at how many of their activities are average Joe activities. And I tell them, get rid of all of them. Those activities are not helping you get in. Now, don't get rid of all of them. If you love the activity, great, do it, right? But if you are doing that activity because you think it will help you get in, eliminate it from your schedule. It will not help you get in. There is this terrible misunderstanding that admissions officers are looking at your resume and saying, oh, look at how hardworking this person is. We should invite them onto campus. Every one of the 40,000 applicants are hardworking. They're not impressed by your hard work, okay? More activities is not better. So eliminate all the activities that you have on your schedule that, that you do not love, that you are doing just because you think it will help you get in. Eliminate them all. That will free up time for you. What do you do with that time? Be curious, right? We already identified your core values. What are you interested in? Okay. What are you truly interested in? Now go and pursue that interest. If it's art, if it's you know oceanic algae, if it's anything else, go pursue it. But be curious, spend all of your time pursuing things that you truly love, that you truly care about, and try to become an expert in that thing. And I teach my students how to narrow down the topic to pick their niche. I, I teach them how to how to segment a bigger topic into a smaller topic into a smaller topic so that they can become an expert relatively quickly. And then if you've got an interest, it's highly evolved, you've got core values, you're going to discover a problem in your community, right? Something that breaks your heart, something that violates your core values, something that makes you angry. Start spending your time fixing that problem. Use whatever expertise you have developed, plus the time that you have. Leverage experts as much as you can, but begin solving that problem. And as you solve a real problem in your community, you develop new skills and new higher levels of emotional intelligence and self-efficacy. And as you develop yourself to a higher level, you become the kind of person that that Harvard and Yale and Princeton look at and they say, who is this kid? How does a high school student create, you know, solve that kind of a problem? That's an adult kind of problem, right? And, and in the end, that's what makes you interesting. You've pursued your curiosity with tremendous vigor. You've solved a problem in your community, or at least you've, you've made a problem a little bit less of a problem. You have your core values clearly defined for you. And, and as you continue to live that life, then over time you scale the impact of your solution, get it bigger and bigger, start collaborating with professors, collaborate with professionals, collaborate with other students on other continents, do amazing things, and, 
then once you have an impressive impact project, along with genuine curiosity in some area that makes you interesting, you're going you're gonna to really stand out. You're going to be someone that the university says, wow, we, we need that kind of person on our campus. That's who we're looking for. Yeah. So like one of the main things then uh, is that you should be more of you instead of pretending to be anyone else and taking up hobbies. So just like a quick uh, part I would like to ask you is that what are some non-average Joe activities which you have no noticed? Like, uh, for example, if someone is very, like, very passionate in painting, just as an example, and uh, like, would it be considered as an average activity, even though someone is like deeply passionate and he's trying to do something, he or she is trying to do something and in, in the field of painting and is really trying to change the society? Well, if you're passionate about it, then it doesn't matter if your skill set is average Joe or higher than average Joe. If you're, if you're just average, it won't help you that you're a painting, painter. Yeah. If you paint enough that you become quite good, it, it, it'll be exceptional, especially if you use your painting to generate awareness, to solve a problem, to help make the world a little bit better. If you do something with your painting, that can be exceptional. But you probably have to be a fairly talented painter to start using yes. your painting to solve problems. If you're yeah. average, it probably won't help you get in. But if you're passionate about it, if you love it, if that's how you how you find yourself or, you know, if it's important to you, then do it. The, 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 there are a number of activities that are average Joe activities that you should still do. I mean, even if even if you just, you know, you like someone who's in that activity and this is your best chance at spending time with that person. Uh, that's a good reason to do that activity. It's not just what I'm saying is if you're doing that activity because you think it will help you get into college, then you should quit yeah. the activity. Then, yep, absolutely. So that brings us to my next question uh, that I was recently listening to a TED talk by Alex Chang and he mentioned, and he's a Harvard graduate, and he mentioned that uh, around 50 percent of Harvard students uh, while they reach the final year uh, experience symptoms of uh, depression because they have to go through immense pressure from all around from the families and friends and all around for the future present for the grades and sustaining themselves through those years I guess this is also common not only to Harvard but other Ivy League colleges and even every other college that uh, people go through such uh, emotions and stress and anxiety and depression and symptoms of depression. So what is your advice to such students and how can they overcome this feeling of immense pressure and uh, anxiety or uh, symptoms of depression? So what do you advise them so that that it'll go smooth their years in the college go smoothly? I think it's I think it's tricky. I don't I, I don't know which TED talk you're referring to. I I feel like there might be slightly more anxiety or mental health concerns at an Ivy League school compared to a non-Ivy League school because the student body is highly driven. It's it's you know if if you look at the top two students in your high school um, and how driven they were compared to everyone else, literally everyone at Harvard is like that. And they're just highly, highly driven. So yeah, uh, you start to compare yourself. You start to realize that there are very talented people, um, more talented than you. It can be a letdown. Maybe some people are, are disappointed by that. But that was not my experience. Um, that was not my experience. Now, I did not attend Harvard College. I was there as a graduate student. But I have plenty of friends who, who were undergrads who were there at Harvard College. Um, and then the, the graduate students are phenomenal also. They're, they're absolutely amazing. Um, so it's Harvard's unique in that both the undergraduate programs and the graduate programs are, are, are very, very uh, competitive. And so, but my experience, I would say, sure, there's, there's plenty, of, of, um, plenty of people to compare yourself to if, if that's what you want to do. But there were plenty of people who just, you know, they, they were doing their thing. And the fact that someone else was better than them at something wasn't a big deal. It didn't rock their world. 
um, even if they were the best at everything in high school, those skills to students because I think that they're valuable. And some of it is mindset and some of it is is tactic, right? How how what's the ratio of focused effort to um, strategic recovery? Um, most people, for example, most most people, if they are in a groove and they're studying really well, an hour goes by and they feel like I don't need a break. I feel great. And they keep going two hours, three hours, four hours. And suddenly they're going, going, going. And then it's not like they slow down. Go, go, go. Slam. They hit the wall. Crash. I need a break. Oh. And then when they take a break, yeah. they can't get back up. They can't get back into that because they've gone through four hours of studying and they never let the brain recover. Well, I know enough about neuroscience, about enough about how the brain works and how we learn that I know that I set a 50-minute timer. And I know I'm going to be in the groove because I know that I can get into focus effort really quickly. And at the end of 50 minutes, I'm going to be writing with my pencil uh, or I'm going to be typing. And I'm, I'm going to say, no, I don't want to stop. And when the alarm goes off, I turn off the alarm, I put the pencil down, or I close the laptop. Even if I'm in the middle of a word, I don't even finish the word. I stop. I stand up, I take four deep breaths, I say to myself, nice job, Steve, nice 50 minutes, that was awesome. I, I step back, I stretch out my body, especially my legs, my hamstrings, my hips. I walk just a little ways, I take deep breaths, I grab a drink of water, I come back. The whole break is about two to three minutes long. That's it. And half that time is saying, nice job. Wow. Excellent focus. You got a lot done. Look at all that you did. Yeah. And half of that time is, okay, here we go. Even better session next 50 minutes. This is going to be awesome. We're going to do great. We're going to get so much done. Nice job. Here we go. Let's keep it going. And I'm saying that to myself as I stretch. I'm saying that to myself as I breathe deeply. I'm saying that to myself as I, as I drink water. And then I open up the computer again, set the timer for 50 minutes, and boom. And I'll tell you, if you give yourself two to three minutes of recovery every 50 minutes, if you don't push yourself beyond that time period, you stop at 50 minutes, you stretch out your legs, you get extra blood flowing into your body, you can go 14, 15, or more hours in one day with almost full brain power. Okay, It, it won't stay after hour 10, you'll be down to 85%, Yeah. 40%, whatever, but you can keep going. I've pushed myself into hour 15 and 16 and still had excellent focus. Whereas yeah. if I had just pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed until I collapsed, then I can't even recover. Yeah. You go four hours and you think you need a break. After a half hour, do you think your brain can refocus? You're fully depleted. You never recovered. You're gone. The only way you, you recover now is sleeping right there are other ways to to recover you can hyperventilate you can kind of reset your your brain there are things you can do but just trust me it is much better much yeah. better uh, productivity is a function of clarity and recovery if you are clear about what you need to get done and you 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 plan in strategic recovery along the way you can produce three times five times ten times what the average student can produce. Yeah. And so, you know, I think Harvard is full of students who understand that or similar strategies. Um, and so I teach those tactics. I teach the mindset. I teach all of that stuff in the Ivy League Challenge. I also teach it on the podcast for free. Uh, and so anyway, I think that, yes, there's a ton of pressure at Harvard, yeah. um, but I love it. It's the kind yeah. of pressure that I want. It's yeah. It's the pressure that brings out the best in me. It brings out the best in my in my classmate. Um, I never I never felt depressed because I was a Harvard student. Yeah. Never, and part of that is I never felt the the imposter syndrome. Right. Okay. I did. I did for for a short time. I felt like I didn't belong. That I you know, I was too in awe of everything. But just like most students, I got over it and yeah. and then I was fine the rest of the time. Yeah.
absolutely right that even like when you work out or exercise if you do it exactly like a single day you do it for four five hours and then take a, a half a day of the break and your body is broken but the same thing like if you have a pur- purposeful break and a complete routine then it it is much more of uh, adds much more value to the whole system and i guess well, your uh, the- brain your brain can keep going your body will break down even if you take breaks you can't go yeah. all day yeah. But your brain, I, I, I promise you, it's not just me. I've trained students, teenagers. I've trained teenagers to push into our ten and beyond with very high focus. Yeah, it's not something that you should do all day every day. You, you may get there if you're if you end up being the CEO of a big company and you need fifteen hour days every day. You need your best focus. I know what that's like. Uh, th- there may be times, but for my teenagers that I train, that I teach, you know, if they're if they're heading into exams, if they're heading into end of year or or other really really important times, then they need to get enough sleep and they need to have yeah. this a strategy that allows them to 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 take in more information than they otherwise could do. And so, okay. yeah, yeah, I teach them both the mindset and the tactical strategies around it and. I mean, you'd be amazed at what your brain yeah. can do. Absolutely. So, so this concludes our question segment, and it's a, a new recurring segment that we have uh, established in the podcast, and uh, it's about audience segment. So, one of the questions that we, the first question that we have is that, so what is the best academic or non-academic experience you've had in Harvard? And it's asked by Arjun. Ah, uh, well. Um... Non-academic experiences are so regular. Just sitting next to people in the lunchroom that you've never met before, uh, or or just talking to someone as they're as they're walking, getting to know people, the stories and the people that I that I met at Harvard uh, are truly inspiring. You know, really inspiring. And um, and I I have friends from Harvard that will will be my best friends forever. You know. Yeah. Um, but academically, yeah, there, there was, uh, there was a uh, John Paul Rollert, Dr. Rollert. We, we call him John Paul. He taught leadership, a leadership class. And our last class, he talked about some of the stuff that I teach in the Ivy League Challenge. He really changed, um, he changed the way that I teach teenagers because of what he said in that last class. Um, and it was so profound that when he finished, we all stood up and gave him, gave him a standing ovation. Uh, I've never, I've never heard of that before. You know, uh, we all just felt so inspired. We stood up and, and started cheering and there were so many people crying, uh, just, just, just tears flowing down faces because so many people were so touched and so inspired. And he just talked about, you know, the, the, the privilege that we had to be in that class and, and all the privileges that we've experienced. And he, and he, you know, he recognized that, that there were very various levels of privilege in that class because some people are flown to Harvard on Harvard's dime and they have nothing, you know, they're, they're admitted and Harvard pays for everything. And, once they leave Harvard, you know, they'll go back to nothing again. And of course they'll have an education and they'll go create something, but they come from poverty, from real poverty. He knows that some of the students in the class come from there, but he still said, look, you all come from this level of privilege. And, and what are we going to do about that? How are we going to make the world a better place as a result of, of this community and what we've learned anyway? Uh, he was generous enough to, to, and gracious enough to be interviewed on my podcast. And he kind of reiterated that message that he shared with us in class on my podcast. But literally you look around the room and you see so many people crying as we're just all standing ovation, cheering for him. It was touching. It was absolutely touching. That's amazing. I, I wish, uh, I wish we had another 30 minutes. I could tell you other, I mean, so many, so many teachers have changed the way that I view the world and the way that yeah. I teach teenagers, the way that I train, you know, the participants in the Ivy League challenge. 
so much of that happened because of those, you know, those professors and those teachers that, that I learned from. Yeah, absolutely. So the second question is by Jhansi and she asks, it's very difficult to get into a single university, like, because there are 50,000 people applying for like a thousand seats. So what are the chances that uh, people can get into it? And uh, like, are there any uh, online courses? And if you do any online courses, how beneficial are they for our chances? Uh, will an online course help you to get admitted to a top tier school? Sure, but it's not the online course that helps you. It's the fact that you pursued your curiosity to the point that you became an expert. So yeah. I'll give you I'll give you an example. Um, I had a student who uh, so this this particular person she she got she did everything in that first list. She was she had twelve AP classes and she got fives in all AP classes, all twelve classes, mm -hmm. near perfect SAT score. Um, she was a varsity athlete, uh, an outstanding musician. She played in Carnegie Hall, played the flute. Mm -hmm. um, she was in leadership positions and um, she was just amazing. But her friends were one year older than her. So she did all of these things so that she could graduate after her junior year so she could start college a year early, which is not too uncommon. I did the same thing. I graduated a year early from high school. It's not common, but it's not unheard of. So she was ready to graduate after her junior year. She applied to several Ivy League schools and Stanford, which was her dream school, um, and she was rejected by all of them. She was not admitted to any of her top schools. So we have really good evidence that that strategy does not work. The yeah. top grades, top test scores, blah, 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 blah. When, when she, all she had was a summer to fix this, right? So when we spoke and identified her core values, identified her interests, identified a problem that violated her core values. She had very little time, but she was, she loved economics. And one of her core values was gender equity. And it made her angry. It violated her core values that so many economics textbooks were gender biased. Yeah. And so she wrote an economics 101, an introduction to economics textbook, a, a gender neutral, intro to economics textbook for middle school students. She wrote it, she published it, and she distributed it, distributed it to a dozen or more schools in her area. Wow. During that summer after her junior year, after she was rejected from all these schools, she had so little time, that's what she spent her time doing. When she reapplied, now she had clarity on her core values. She had evidence that she was pursuing her interests one of the things that she did is she took an online class in economics to make sure that she got fives in microeconomics yeah. and macroeconomics in AP, but she wanted to take an extra class or two from uh, Coursera or from some study abroad program. So she took classes online to reinforce her understanding in economics and to transfer that information into a gender neutral textbook that she published and distributed and all of that happened in time to apply. Her senior year, she got into several IVs. She got into Stanford, which is where she chose to go. Um, and you can just really clearly see the difference, right? When, when her yeah. message is, these are my core values, and this is what I did because of it. I'm interested in economics. And so I did these things. I My core value of gender neutrality, of gender, gender equity, I found a way to solve a problem in my community and make the world better because I am a part of the world. And, and Stanford sees that and says, that's the kind of person we want on our campus. Mm -hmm. Wow, we want you, right? Versus a year before she had the same, she did not take any new APs, by the way. She had the same number of APs, same test score. She didn't retake the test. Everything was the same. She had the same activities, but now she had core values and evidence that she was pursuing her interests and she was solving a problem in her sphere of influence, in her yeah. community. And yeah. with that difference, huge difference, suddenly now she's admitted to Ivy League schools, admitted to Stanford, and that's where she went. Yeah. So yeah, uh, if, you, if you have this genuine interest in economics, in finance, in whatever, uh, then take online classes, 
yeah. use those online classes to help you help your community in some way, right? Yeah. And if as you do that, I mean, of course, I was not able to, the, the Ivy League challenge is a 12 week course and, and it's, it's pretty intensive. I, I take you through a lot. So in this, you know, 40 minutes that we've been talking, I wasn't able to, to go through everything, but um, yes. yeah, you could, you would do some of those things as a part of your overall strategy um, and then enhance it through outreach, through professional outreach, through professor outreach, get letters of recommendation from research associates and things like there's all kinds of things you can do uh, to prove that, that you are the person that you say you are. Yes. Um, and taking online classes might be one of those. Okay. So this third question is by Sarthak, and he asks that, uh, what do you believe are the aspects that allowed you to get into Harvard in, in your own life? Um, you know, I don't know that that's super important. Okay. Right. I have some things that, that stand out. Um, on the company, by the time I applied, I was a debate champion. I had beaten yeah. several Harvard uh, teams in debate when I was an undergraduate. Um, I had top grades. I had a lot of the things going for me. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that when, when admissions officers read an application, they want to get to know you. Yeah. And they want to know that, uh, they want to know various levels of who you are. And so as you explain who you are and you provide evidence through recommendation letters, through a resume, through activities, through, through things that you've accomplished, through your writing, as you provide evidence for who you are, they feel more and more comfortable that who you say you are is who you will be on campus. And if they want that person on campus, then you're in. If, if they already have someone that kind of fills that role, you may be someone that they want and you won't get in and and that's okay i would say this i would say that when i applied um i did i believed that i would be successful with or without harvard i didn't feel like i needed harvard to be successful yeah and i think that's a really critical mindset i think that if yeah. if your if the key to your success in life is getting into a specific school, that school does not want you. But okay. if you are confident that you will be successful with or without that school, and if you choose to go to that school, that school will be lucky to have you on their campus, uh, then you're much more likely to be admitted to the school. Yeah. Okay. So thank you. So this uh, also concludes our audience segment. So coming to the last one uh, is a segment which uh, consists of two questions that we ask all our guests. So the first uh, part of the so the first question is that what is the best mistake that you ever made, uh, which resulted in a very positive outcome? Uh, best mistake. Uh, I make mistakes all the time. And yeah. uh, there's there are so many good ones um i mean man so many things in life uh you learn more when there's a little bit of pain when there's a little bit of regret you learn so much more than when things go smoothly i started running when i was in middle school because i was new to the school and i met one person I met one friend on the first day of school and I didn't have any other friends. I didn't meet anyone else um, because lots of elementary schools feed into this one junior high and I was moving from out of state. So I did not go to any of the elementary schools. So everyone at the school knew some people, but not everyone. Yeah. And they just assumed that I went to one of the other schools, right? They didn't know that I didn't know anyone. So my first day of, of junior high, grade seven, um, I met one person and he said, I'm going to go do cross country. And I had never heard of cross country. Cross country is running long distances, yeah. but I didn't know yeah. that. Uh, and he said, I'm going to go. There's, there's, a, there's a meeting or, or tryouts or something. 
today after school or tomorrow after school. And, and I said, yeah, I'm going to go too. Cause I didn't know what it was. Yeah. I didn't even know if it was, I didn't know if it would be athletic or if it was on a computer, I didn't know what cross country meant. Maybe it's a yeah. reading program. I don't know. Yeah. Turns out that it's running long distances and, um, and I learned a lot as a cross country runner. Uh, every single race that I ran about a mile or a mile and a half in maybe two kilometers into my run, I started to feel so, you know, so much pain in my body, my muscles, my lungs hurt so badly that I would look for a place that I could slip and fall. And then yeah. I could pretend that I was hurt. I could fake an injury and I wouldn't have to keep running. Yeah. Right. Every single run, I wanted to fake an injury, but I never did. Yeah. Okay. And I learned so much uh, about what it takes to push your body and how your body can keep going beyond yeah. what you think it can do. Um, I learned so much from that, that, you know, that naive, terrible mistake of signing up for cross country just because yeah. this one person said they were going to do it and I didn't have another friend. Uh, I, I, if I would have waited two more days, I would have had different friends, which I did, right? I made more friends the next day and the next day. But, but I went and I started running and I hated it and I loved it at the same time. Um, it was definitely a mistake. It wasn't intentional. I didn't mean to do it. Yeah. But it changed my life forever. And honestly, I mean, you give me enough time, I can just give you a list of, of hundreds of mistakes that I've made that have yeah. made me a better person. Yeah. yeah. I love mistakes. Yeah. No, this goes exactly with what Will Smith said once that uh, he said that every person should do two things in life, which will teach them a lot. And one of them is reading and the other is running. Because both of the uh, reading will help you uh, enrich your mind and running will give you the, like it teaches a lot to how you should not give up and you go through the pain and everything. So, so the second question to this uh, segment is, of, as we see in your background, there are many books. And uh, the, so uh, are there any books or movies that positively impacted your life or changed your life in any way? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I'm a big reader. I read um on average more than a book a week i i probably average 1.25 books a week or so uh let's call it a book a week but yeah 65 70 maybe 75 books a year um and uh, i love so many books so many books um yeah there there are so many just right here uh here's a good one the the progress paradox okay. by greg easterbrook uh talks about how um how the world is getting better in so many ways but people are are becoming sadder right yeah. overall there's greater incidence of mental health and, and depression and things like that. Um, and he explores why. First of all, the evidence that the world is getting better in all of these ways. And, and it's um, he he's focused primarily on the United States, but the United States is, is cleaner, uh, less violent, less crime, much wealthier, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's just all these ways that the United States is better and better and better over time. So yeah. better than it used to be. Not that it's better yeah. than the rest of the world. There are lots of yes, areas yes. in the world that are better than the United States in a lot of ways. But uh, his argument is that the whole world is better than it was, but he focuses yeah. on the United States as the evidence. Um, certainly, I live here in Singapore. You live in India. And Singapore and India are both really good examples of life today is significantly better than life 30 yeah. years ago. Yes. Uh, and... Anyway, um, so I love that. I, I love the, you know, that message. I love the thinking that goes behind it. Why are we so sad when everything's improving so much? And what can we do about it? Um, and yeah, I think there's a lot there. Yeah, there, 
books don't get me started on books i i love <laughs> i love books and that's a that's a great topic for uh for another podcast <laughs> yeah, if you look at my podcast i would say 15 to 20 of those episodes are about books that i had read that i recommend to yes. others things like atomic yeah. habits or you know yeah. Oh. Yeah, uh, Atomic Habits is a very good book. So thank you. Thank you, Steve. Thank you for coming today. And uh, we have talked about many topics. And uh, though we couldn't go into much more because we we could talk for hours here. And all of what you're saying is so uh, helpful for uh, students of my age. Thank you. We're so glad to have you. And I hope you also had a good time here. So thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.